So our reading from tonight is from Titus chapter 2, and you can find that on page 1198 in the Pew Bibles. So Titus chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. You must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things that you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Amen. Let's come before God again in prayer. Let's pray together. Liberating God, in love you have set us free. Free from slavery to sin and to self. Free to know and to love you. Free to follow and to serve you. We praise you for your faithful love towards us and for the many ways that you have and continue demonstrate that love to us. We see your love in the natural world around us, in the sky and trees and rivers. We see your love in the gift of your commandments, the rules for living that guide us into right relationship with you and with the people around us. And we see your love in Jesus Christ, who lived and died to bring us life and life in all its fullness. Father, because we have experienced your love, we come before you of confidence, bringing our needs and the needs of our world. God, in your unfailing love, hear our prayers. We pray for those who live surrounded by violence, whether from war or political unrest, crime or domestic violence. We pray for those who have been victims of violent crime and for those whose loved ones have been injured or murdered. God, in your unfailing love, hear our prayer. 
We pray for those who find themselves involved in crime, whether by choice or through coercion, those caught up into gangs or prostitution, those who have turned to crime to pay for their addictions, those who are imprisoned. God, in your unfailing life, hear our prayer. We pray for our homes and families, for parents juggling the responsibilities of work and family, for husbands and wives whose marriages are breaking down, for children chafing under parental authority or expectations. God, in your unfailing love, hear our prayer. We pray for our church family, a reminder of our common foundation in Christ. Inspire and strengthen us in works of witness and service to others. Help us be accountable to one another, honest with one another. May we be humble and gentle, bearing one another in love. Father, we pray for the different generations in our church. We give you thanks for the people who have shaped, molded, and influenced us in our faith. For older Christians who have guided us and directed us towards you. Father, we pray your blessing on them and give you thanks for their faithfulness. For the young people within our church family, we pray that you'd raise up a generation of courageous men and women who will light the way for others in this dark world. God, in your unfailing love, hear our prayer. We pray for the many people in our world, our community, our families, our workplaces who do not yet know you and have not experienced the new life that comes from knowing Christ Jesus. They continue to search for purpose and meaning elsewhere. God, in your unfailing love, hear our prayer. Merciful God, we pray for ourselves. Give us strength and courage to keep your commandments, to live in faithful obedience to your will. Guard our hearts and minds from all that might distract us from living out our commitment to you. Help us to find our true worth in knowing you more fully, loving you more deeply, and serving you more faithfully. God, in your unfailing love, hear each of our prayers tonight. Amen. Does the name Ravi Zacharias mean anything to any of you? Uh, an evangelist and uh, um, an apologist. He was born in Madras, India in 1946. He was an atheist until the age of 17 when he tried to commit suicide. You know, that's, that's very poignant actually because if there is no God, if there is no point, if we are here by random circumstances and situation, why are we here? Where are we going? What is the purpose in life? And he took his beliefs to its logical conclusion. Fortunately, while he was in hospital, a local Christian worker brought, brought him a Bible and told his mother to read to him from John 14. And that's what led him to commit his faith to Christ. Now, Ravi Zacharias is just one of a number of people who've contributed to this book. Uh, it is called Why I Am Not an Atheist, Facing the Inadequacies of Unbelief. And we have here uh, contributions by a biologist, a university chaplain, 
a psychiatrist, a debater, a theologian, a journalist, and uh, that is available for anybody who would like to read it tonight. All right, we've got one up here. And Kirk, when, when you finish, do you know the, uh, the rule? <laughs> Pass it on to somebody else, uh, and that would be great. That, incidentally, was one of the books that uh, the staff were, were looking at on, on Tuesday mornings. We, we sort of read one chapter uh, in anticipation of meeting with each other, and then we talked about it. So there we go. Good. All right. If you're able to turn uh, with me, please, to Titus chapter uh, 2, and that's page 1198 in our Bibles. Uh, Last week in our study of Titus 1, we saw how Paul the Apostle wrote to his trusted younger friend Titus on the Mediterranean island of Crete. And he was encouraging Titus to appoint mature Christian leaders in the young congregations which were to be found around the coast of the island and to, uh, and, and to resist uh, the people who wanted to add their own thoughts or hobby horses or additional teachings that would only lead to the young believer's downfall. Sadly, if you glance down at chapter 1, verse 12, the people of Crete were infamous for being lazy, evil, and liars. What a way to be known. Instead, chapter 1, verse 2, Paul encourages Titus to teach the truth that leads to godliness, a faith which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time in the purpose, person of Jesus Christ. So, so don't be a liar. Uh, follow the truth because Jesus uh, and God the Heavenly Father cannot lie. And it's that idea of Christ-like godliness based on the truth that we want to think about very specifically this evening. Uh, and we'll focus particularly, I think, on chapter 2, 11 through to 14, uh, which says, and here I quote from the message, God's readiness to give and forgive is now public. Salvation is available for everyone. We are being shown how to turn our backs on a godless, indulgent life and how to take on a God-filled, God-honoring life. This new life is starting right now and is whetting our appetites for the glorious day when our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, appears. He offered himself as a sacrifice to free us from a dark, rebellious life into this good, pure life making us a people he can be proud of, energetic in goodness. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we turn now to this, your word, please will you encourage and rebuke us as is necessary with all authority. And what we pray is for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, if last week Paul was giving practical instructions to Titus concerning how to lead the church in a godly way, because chapter 1, verses 5 through to 9 is all about the sort of character that a Christian elder ought to have. Do you remember he was far more concerned about the character 
of the leaders in the church rather than what they do. We're often concerned about what do leaders do. Uh, Paul was much more concerned about what sort of person they are. And so here in this next section, chapter 2, he then goes on to offer teaching concern how the Christian home ought to be led in a godly way. So we've got church, we've got home. Next week we'll see about how society ought to be uh, ordered. So that's the the format there. And uh, here he says, sound doctrine should influence and affect how four specific groups of people um, should live. Uh, Older men, verse 2, older women, uh, 3 through to 5, young men in 6 to 8, and slaves in verses 9 and 10. If anybody supposes that the temptation to sin only affects them and their age group, uh, then Titus chapter 2 divests us of that misunderstanding. No matter who we are, no matter what stage of life we find ourselves at, sin is an ever-present reality. Or as Genesis 4 verse 7 puts it so graphically, sin is crouching at the door and its desire is to have you, but you must master it. Older men, and I suppose reluctantly that must now include myself, older men, we must learn to be temperate. That is self-disciplined, restrained, moderate, self-controlled. Uh, And you see, older men can't presume to be respected, verse 2, on account of their age. Uh, We've no right to that automatically. Older men have to earn that right by their behavior. There can be some very foolish older men. And we're to develop a healthy faith, love, and endurance that can be admired and respected and emulated. You see, you see back again to character. Uh, nobody's status in, in God's sight is just by, by your age or your gender or anything else. Not at all. It's your character. And likewise, older women, do you see in verse 3, you are to be guided into lives of reverence so that uh, you end up as neither gossips nor drunks, but models of goodness. And when younger women look at you, older women, uh, they will be inspired how they in turn might better love their husbands and children and be virtuous and pure, keeping a good house and demonstrating kindness. Isn't that a lovely word? Kindness. As older women demonstrate kindness themselves, the younger women say, Yeah, that's attractive. Kindliness, kindness. So it's quite a thing, isn't it? This mutual care and encouragement and intergenerational mentoring that uh, Karen was talking about earlier on, uh, which older Christian men and older Christian women can and ought to have for the younger generation. And verse 6 shows us how the older men might encourage the younger men to be self-controlled. Show them how to live disciplined lives by doing it yourself, by being incorruptible in your teaching, 
your words solid and sane. Then when those who aren't believers actually see the integrity you are demonstrating, verse 8, they themselves might eventually come around. Uh, when atheists see the integrity of those who trust in Jesus, they may well say, I wonder, what is it that drives them? What is it that leads their life? What's their purpose? It seems to work for them. So that's the purpose, you see, in verse 8. Um, those who aren't believers, when they actually see the integrity of younger and older men, they themselves might eventually believe. And this is something that both married people and unmarried people can do. It's something that those with children and those without children are also able to do as well. So this is very simple, straightforward, practical teaching for the intergenerational church family. Uh, and then he goes on to say you're to encourage one another to two things. One, to say no to ungodliness, verse 12. And two, to say yes, verse 14, to doing what is good. And most of that is caught, not taught, is observed with the eye as well as learned with the ear. And if that was applicable um, then, uh, we also see there was something very specifically uh, appropriate to the time when it was originally written, and that was to slaves, because there were lots of slaves in the Roman Empire at this time, verse 9. Uh, the epistles, by the way, always teach that slaves are as valuable and as significant to God as their owners. Level playing field, always. Again, back to what God sees. He sees the heart. He doesn't see the status. Uh, but it wasn't uh, the purpose of uh, the apostle to cause political revelation, revolution. Um, the uh, sudden social change, uh, I guess, wouldn't adorn the gospel. And so here he speaks to those who find themselves in this situation at this time, that they are to be loyal workers, they are to be a bonus to their masters, and by their good and honest character, verse 10, shine through their actions and uh, add luster to the teaching of our Savior God. And that verse, uh, verse 10, by the way, was the subject of a famous sermon by the great Victorian preacher Spurgeon. It was entitled, Adorning the Gospel. Uh, it's worth Googling. Um, Spurgeon, Adorning the Gospel. Because all of us have a responsibility, whoever we are, whatever age, whatever stage, to make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. Do you see that phrase? Making the teaching about God our Savior attractive. How do we do that? Not by watering it down. Not by changing it. Not by sidestepping the difficult bits. But living it out with integrity and honesty and with Christ-like loveliness. 
That's how we adorn the gospel. Make the teaching about God our Savior attractive through the way we live. And how do we do that? We'll glance down at verses 11 through to 14. And there that we can see we do it by precisely the same grace of God that brought us salvation. Some people think that since it is through the grace of God that we have been saved, that is all that there is. God saves. Now it's up to us to get on and live as best we can as Christians. But Titus 2.12 tells us not so. It's the same grace of God that brings salvation that now enables us to live saved lives. It is the same grace of God that justifies the believer and brings her or him from darkness to light that now sanctifies the believer and enables her or him to live in the light rather than in the darkness. Or to put it another way, the grace that once granted us salvation now disciplines us and the absence of sanctification in the believer's life must surely bring into question the reality of our justification. And so verse 12, the same grace of God that enabled us to say yes to God in the first place now enables us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions. For the same grace of God that first brought us into a place where we were united with Christ in faith, now brings us into a place where we live lives that are faithful and Christ-like. Many of you will know the hymn, Rock of Ages, Cleft for Me, and there's a wonderful phrase in that hymn that explains this beautifully. It says this, Be of sin the double cure. What is the double cure for sin? Cleanse me from its guilt and power. Uh, if guilt is dealt with once and for all, when we were saved, when we were justified, sin's power is dealt with continually as God by His Holy Spirit does His work of sanctification within our lives. The same grace of God that justifies, liberates, pays the price, sets us free, now sanctifies and enables us to live for Jesus and make us more like him. And if God has done all this for us, how might we now live? Well, says Paul to Titus, show the people in the island of Crete how God is for us, verse 14, so that we in turn might be eager, eager to do what is good. Christian people are to be known as people who do what is good. Yes? Is that a revelation? Not do-gooders, but good people. Getting on and doing good things. Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness 
and to purify for himself a people who are his very own, eager to do what is good. One of the benefits of preaching twice on a Sunday is seeing the link between the passage of Scripture that you're working on for the morning uh, and the evening. And it just as a reminder of the lovely consistency of Scripture's Old and New Testament, how they're so inextricably tied up together. And it's a, it never ceases to amaze me, just the wonder of how all these 66 books written over thousands of different years could say such compatible things with each other and link with each other. And this morning, uh, we had this beautiful picture of Boaz, this wonderful man of stature and noble character. Actually, I don't think I realized what a man Boaz is, just an outstandingly significant, important giant of a man Boaz was until, uh, until preparing for, for this, this morning uh, and being reminded of that. And, and he's described as the Redeemer, the one who protected Ruth from all wickedness, the wickedness of other men, and was keen to do what was good, providing generously for the foreign national and her widowed mother-in-law. It's a beautiful cameo, isn't it? Now spring forward a few thousand years to the great Redeemer. And it's interesting to see the term Paul uses here when talking about the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 13, our great God and Savior. That incidentally is one of the terms that Caesar liked to be known as, our great God and Savior. You know the way how Kim Jong-un and his father and his grandfather were known. Very grandiose titles. Well, Caesar was known as our great God and Savior. And, and here, surreptitiously, I think this is so wonderfully, clandestinely, the apostle slips this in. There's only one great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself to redeem us. Here's the Redeemer. Here's the man of stature to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people who are his very own eager to do what is good. Jesus Christ redeemed us from all wickedness so that we could be purified for himself a people who have been made clean and pure and lovely. And both these things are achieved by the same grace of God because it's the same Holy Spirit who saves us, who also sanctifies us. Now the question is, are we as believing people willingly cooperating with God, Father, Son and Spirit in this process of sanctification? When we first came to faith in Christ, we said yes to him whether that was at a camp or at boys' brigade or at morning or evening worship. And whether we recognized that at the time or not, we were only able to respond positively to Christ because the grace of God 
was working in our hearts and minds, drawing us to the Savior. And now that we are Christ's, it's exactly the same grace of God who enables us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passion and to live self-controlled and upright and godly lives in this present age. The only reason we are able to be negative towards those things that are bad, that are unchristlike, is because the same grace of God working in our hearts and minds, conforming us to the likeness of a God and Savior, is at work within us. These days, negativity is frowned upon, isn't it? We, we try to be as positive as we can, and rightly so. But sometimes, Christian people have to be prepared to be different from this permissive age and be prepared to say no. No to ungodliness and worldly passions. Do you need that spelled out? I don't. I know only too well what are ungodly and worldly passions. And because I've been redeemed, I must no longer entertain them. And I also know that I'm not able to say no to them unless the same Lord who redeemed me also enables me to stand firm against them and resist them in his strength. And the only way any one of us can resist, resist the unchristlike passions that bombard us from both outside and from within is by having a new and greater affection, my desire for Christ, my gratitude to Christ must be stronger than my willingness to hurt or uh, distress the one who died on the cross in order to rescue me from the kingdom of darkness and transfer me into the kingdom of light. Yesterday, uh, I did a job I've been putting off for some time now, and that was clearing the drains around the manse. Clearing the drains is... Not the most glamorous job, but it's a vitally necessary one before the rains come and if they are blocked, uh, the things that spill out is filthy mess. So I got down on my knees and removed the gunge and the dirt and the grime and filled not one but two bucket loads of silt and leaves and maggots and bugs. When we belong to Jesus, the drains he has entrusted to us must be kept clean and pure so that the cleansing flow of his spirit might wash us and the channels kept open. And that means constantly permitting him to do in us and through us a drastic work of unplugging and purifying so that we can be people in whom and through him he can work so that we in turn can actually, verse 14, do what is good.
Do you know that this is a, a really hard sort of sermon to preach? Because the natural tendency is to want to be affirming all the time, but if we are to adorn the gospel, if we are to mark the teaching and make the teaching about God our Savior attractive to older men and older women, to young men and young women, to boys and girls, then it is vital that we learn with God's help how to say yes to Jesus and how with his help to say no to ungodliness, no to worldly passion. And that is actually more attractive than we might ever know because it's different. It's beautiful. It's clean. It's Christ-like. These then, verse 15, are the things you should teach, Titus. Encourage and rebuke with all authority. And don't let anybody despise you. Will we pray? And if this morning we had a call to return, to return to the Redeemer, this evening we have the appeal to clear the drains, to get rid of the dirt and the grime, the filth and the muck, those dirty things that have accumulated in our lives. And if that's something you want help to pray about, then please do know we have a prayer team who are happy to do precisely that. Or feel free to have a word with myself or somebody else you trust. But don't go from here with those drains still stinking. Ask our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, to purify us. To make us a people able and willing and eager to do what is good. Heavenly Father, you know our hearts. You have access to the deepest recesses of our minds and affections. And you know how we so easily harbor sin and ungodliness and worldly behavior. Please, by your grace, enable us to be rid of those things that block your Holy Spirit, being able to do his work in and through us. And grant within us a greater affection for our Savior and for his glory. And what we ask is for his sake.